want to, uh, want to start this morning with a, another story, if you would. I had to ask a few people if I've shared this before <clears throat> about myself, because I know I've shared it with individuals before, and <clears throat> you, know, you get to thinking, you know, I've been preaching here for 18 years, I probably told her every story there was to tell, and then I realized, no, I've kept a whole lot of them hidden. So if you've heard this before, great, maybe God will speak to you in a different way. If you haven't, when I graduated from high school, in high school, sports was my God. That was my idol. So a number of my peers from high school that <clears throat> pretty much is that way for a lot of us. And it was one of those areas where I had reasonable success. It came relatively easily. But when I graduated from high school, I was all of 5 feet, 11 and a half inches tall and 144 pounds of dynamite. <laughs> so I went to college and I loved basketball. And I went out for intramural basketball. You know, intramurals, anybody can play, right? You don't have to be good. Most of them weren't. And I played intramurals, and the craziest thing happened, I started to grow. And by the second year of playing intramural basketball, I was 6'4 and 147 pounds. No, <laughs> I gained a little weight too, but not much. And I went out, I, I, the coach came, the varsity coach came to me and says, would you consider playing basketball? And I thought, no, I wouldn't consider that. These are all studs, these guys. They're all scholarship players, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, I don't think so. He said, no, why don't you give it a try? Well, I love basketball. So I went out for basketball. And lo and behold, I started every game on the varsity my first year after leaving the intramural program. Pretty cool. God, my dad and mom were coming out. They were, dad was proud of me, I think. He never told me that, but I think. He wouldn't have drove that far otherwise, would he? <laughs> So it's the second year of basketball, and by now I'd gotten into uh, running with another crowd of people, and uh, my roommate in college and I thought we were having a good time an awful lot of the time, and we played intramural flag football, and we had a pretty good intramural flag football team, and then after we'd win the game, we'd go celebrate till the next week's game. Yeah, that long. And... Uh, Came fine for basketball to start, but it was going to interfere with intramural flag football playoffs, so I quit basketball. So I could play intramural flag football with the guys. And I love basketball. Well, one of the starting guards on the basketball team lived on the same dorm floor as I, and he came back to me and said, come on, Mike, what are you thinking? Really? Intramural flag football, varsity basketball... I said, ah, the coach will never take me back. He said, no, I already talked to him. He will. So I swallowed a little bit of pride, and I went back and started every single game my second year of varsity basketball. Third year came. Now I'm a fifth-year senior. Fifth year, I took 12 hours of PE so I could come back and play basketball. And it's not as easy as you think. Badminton, gymnastics, fly casting, it was tough. I even went to some of the classes. So, can time for basketball to start? Guess what I did? I quit. Again. I love basketball. Fortunately, the coach cornered me one day and he said, come on, why don't you come up for basketball? So I did. 
I started every game except during the holiday tournament because I got mono over Christmas vacation. And I never understood this for years even after that. Why in the heck would I be so stupid? I loved the game. I loved the sport. It wasn't like I was sitting on the end of the bench never getting to play. And then I began to realize as God began to do some things in my life, and I was nowhere near being a Christian at that time, so don't let that confuse you. But I began to realize years later after I became a Christian, as I thought about some of these things, why would I do something like that, especially with something I cared so much about, something that was so important in my life? And God started to show me, and it wasn't just in that area of my life. But he used that area to step me to look at a bunch of other areas as he started to peel back the layers of all this garbage, some of which I talked about two weeks ago. I thought I'd get a break, and then I listened to Pastor Bob talk last week, and God started dealing with me again about some of these things in my life. And you know, when you're playing intramural basketball and you're having a good time, there's no pressure on you whatsoever, right? You're going to go play the game, win or lose, you're going to go celebrate you played the game. And I went out for basketball, went out for varsity, and I started as a freshman. Nobody had any expectations whatsoever from the new guy off of the intramural program. And I started. And it was all gravy. Nobody had any expectations, and I had no expectations. Then the next year came around. Returning starter. Returning letterman. Expectations. Who am I? These guys are all scholarship players. Look at this. They brought in a whole bunch of new freshman studs. I'm not going out there and going to be humiliated. I quit. Then they came and begged me to play. That helped my ego a little bit, stroked me a little bit, so I went back. Succeeded again that year, and guess what? Third year, I did it again. There's a new batch of freshmen, and you know what? They're always the greatest thing that ever happened to a college campus if you're a basketball player. Man, have you seen so-and-so? Boy, is he good. They gave him a full ride. So I quit again. Then I went back out. And as I look back through my life, there are many, many, many scenarios that play out similarly. I don't want to put myself in a place to not meet people's expectations. So I start living my life to try and meet people's expectations. And of course, you ever heard that you can't please everybody all the time? So then I'm a disappointment. And then I'm a failure. Then I'm not good enough. Then I'm unworthy. Then the shame comes. And it's just a mess. So I try to bury all that junk because I don't want to feel like that. And I go try and find something that I can do well again. So I feel good about who I am and I can start meeting somebody else's expectations. Trying to live up to everybody else's expectations is really hard, isn't it? Anybody ever try and do that? You ever try to live up to the expectations of peers or friends, of people in the church, people at work, your spouse, your children? It's not only hard, it usually isn't that much fun. (laughs) It's just not that much fun. Because we always disappoint them eventually and then we feel like a loser. A failure. And that is one of the problems when we feel that way, we try to live that way. It really inhibits us almost completely 
to living a life that God created us to live. You know, without making any excuses, you know, we, we grow up in different families, different environments, with different parents and friends and schools and situations, and sometimes we start blaming all those things. And like God didn't know what family he was going to put me in. Like God didn't know who my parents were going to be. Like God didn't know where I was going to go to school. Like God didn't know, like God didn't know, like God didn't know. Of course he knew. So he must have had a plan and a purpose. But because of all the things that, that happen in our lives, um, we get so off track, we don't even know who we really are. We're trying to live a life that someone else wants us to live or expect us to live. Or at least we, we have in our own mind conjured up that we have to live that life so we get acceptance. You know, if we start living the life that God created for us, it's not going to keep us from disappointing people. Did you know that? But it will bring glory to God. He created us to bring glory to Him. He knows how messed up I am. He knows that none of us have perfect families. None of us were raised in the perfect environment with the perfect parents. Some were a little more screwed up than others, granted. But it didn't surprise Him. But if we start to live the life that He has for us, He created us to have, we'll still disappoint people. And really, that's okay. Let's take a look at the life of Jesus. And the title of my message was just simply, what if, what if you had you'd been Jesus? What if I had been Jesus? Oh, would that have been a mess? Jesus disappointed just about everybody. His family, I didn't throw the scriptures up there, but his family, it says his kinsmen in Mark chapter 3, it says... They thought he was nuts and they wanted to get him and rescue him from a bunch of people who were getting mad at him so they could get him some treatment. He's crazy. So his kinsmen's go get him. His hometown. His hometown was so offended by him, so upset with him, thought he was crazy, they decided to herd him towards a cliff and then throw him over the cliff and kill him. They were a little disappointed in the guy. His closest friends. We know the story, right? His 12 disciples, his 11 disciples, after jo- one of them, one of them, Judas, not only abandons him, he betrays him, sticks the knife in his back and betrays him and turns him over to the enemies. The rest of them abandon him. They, Jesus disappointed his family, his, his closest friends, his hometown people. They were all disappointed in him. The crowds, man, the crowds came and they came and they came until they didn't get what they wanted. The crowds wanted a Messiah who was going to set them free, who was going to feed them forever, free food, free fish, and we're going to defeat the Romans. He disappointed the crowds, and obviously he really disappointed the religious leaders. They were so disappointed in him, first they tried to blame his power on Satan, and when that didn't stick, they decided we better plot to kill this guy. And they did. Can you imagine if Jesus wasn't true to the self that God had created him to be, the kind of pressures he would have been enduring and how many choices he could have made that would have been bad choices for God's plans to be fulfilled. How was Jesus able to stay faithful? Well, we could say because he was God. I think that would be too easy. I think he stayed faithful because he understood something that we really, 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 really need to all grasp. 
how much the Father loved him and how much he desired to bring glory to the Father. We'll get back to Jesus in just a few minutes. I want to have you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 20. Now Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. And just the preceding verses, he's been talking about those doggone Gentiles and the way they live, those pagans. They're horrible people. They're filled with sin. We, we don't want to live like them. And then he turns to, to the believers and he says, but you didn't learn Christ like that. You didn't learn him this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Notice, he says, you lay aside the old self. And then he goes on and says, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And that you be renewed in your mind, in the spirit of your mind, and then you put on a new self, which is the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Put off the old self, put on the new self. My question right now these days has been, how do I put off the old self if I don't know what in the world it all is? If you look at some commentaries on that verse, it says, get rid of it all, every bit of it, don't try to hide anything, take it all and get rid of all the old junk, all that old self, all that old corruption. And I'm discovering, even yet today, after all these years of being a Christian, that there's some, still some old stuff that I didn't even know was there. And God begins to show me it, and I go, I don't want to look. Isn't it enough? It hurts. It's painful. It's bad memories. Why would I want to go back and deal with that stuff? I have to. Or I can't get rid of the old stuff. I'll keep the old stuff. And it says, take that old stuff. If you've got the teaching of Jesus, if you've heard the teaching of Jesus, you, you know the truth. Go ahead. He's a good God. He loves you. He's your Father. Get rid of the old stuff. Okay, show me the old stuff. Okay, that's enough, God. I can only take so much. But I have to get rid of the old stuff. I have to see it. I have to acknowledge it's there. I then need to realize, does it line up with truth or doesn't it? And if it doesn't, I need to repent of believing that garbage so I can put it off and put on the new. Father, fill me with your spirit. Where I've had fear, fill me with faith. Where there's been shame and guilt and condemnation, let me experience the freedom and joy of the Holy Spirit in my life. So when I look at those scriptures, it's like, we've got to figure out, and the Lord will reveal it to us if we ask him and we cooperate, who in the world is the old self? How do I deal with it? And one of the reasons it's so critical, and this is one of the things I think has got me so focused on this these days, is knowing yourself will definitely improve your relationship with God. They're so intertwined, knowing who I really am and knowing who He really is. As a matter of fact, they're so entwined together, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. You don't know which one comes first. Because how I think of myself, how I perceive myself, definitely impacts how I see God. And how I see God definitely impacts how I see myself. 
So it's so intertwined. I believe it's so important that we know who we are, acknowledge who we are, acknowledge our emotions, acknowledge our feelings, that we're not afraid, that we don't hide them, that we don't continue to bury them. I believe, and I believe this more all the time, and this is an opinion. I can't support it with Scripture. But I believe most of us spend our lives trying to live a life that's not ours. Consciously or unconsciously, we are trying to live a life that meets someone else's expectations. I mean, Cal, oh, you got to grow up and you got to go to school and you got to go to college and you're going to be a doctor. I don't want to be a doctor. You're going to go up and go to college and you're going to be a farmer just like your dad. I don't want to be a farmer. I don't like dirty hands. And that's just the beginning of the pressures that we feel. Trying to meet other people's expectations and living a life like that is not our true life. It's not our true self. And we do it in so many ways that are subtle and unconscious. When I look back, God, it was like God was just taking off the blinders in so many areas of my life. How my life was so dictated by my fear of rejection, my fear of failure, my fear of being thought as not good enough and worthless. I made so many decisions. And not only did I make decisions, I acted out in so many ways that it not only ruined me and my relationship with myself, it ruined my relationship with God, or it hindered it, and it definitely hurt relationships with others. I'm not going to revisit that and my wife again this week. But it's not just her. Lots of relationships are impacted because I'm trying to live this wrong life, this phony life, and... To make sure I protect myself, I gotta be controlling, I gotta be this, I gotta be that. And it's like, no, I don't have to be those things. If I recognize the old stuff and get rid of the old stuff and put on the new stuff that God has provided for us. So I'm not gonna talk completely about emotions and feelings. But it's a key area. We have to understand what our emotions are and our feelings are. And when I say understand them, listen to it this way. I've got to acknowledge that they're there first. Are you angry? Uh-uh. Why are you acting that way? Because I want to. I don't know. We need to acknowledge. Why are you so insecure? I'm not insecure. Why are you so jealous? Well, I don't trust her. I don't trust him. Let me back up again. Why are you so insecure? I'm not, you know, it's, we got to acknowledge that they're there. Then we need to keep ourselves under control enough that we don't act on every emotion. And that's the thing I want to make sure we get. We need to become well aware of who we are emotionally, what we feel, what our emotions are, but we need to not lose our brain in the process. The Bible says to take every thought captive to truth. Every thought, every emotion that we ever have emanates, comes from a thought first. So I, I don't, I want, emotions, are they real? You know, don't trust your emotions. Anybody ever heard that before? Don't trust your emotions. What do you mean? I'm not really feeling what I'm feeling? I am really feeling what I'm feeling. What do you mean, don't trust my emotions? We need to change that and understand, don't act on all your emotions. Discover what they are. They're there. If you're feeling sad or worthless or shameful, somebody can come up to you and say, oh, don't feel shameful. <laughs> I do. Pretend like it's not there. Okay, now I feel better. That's how we act. 
come on, put away that shame. And then, God, Jesus loves you. Okay. Till the next person looks at you cross-eyed and you go, oh, I'm a worthless loser. Or like Rick shared this morning, he, he couldn't even look at people because he, was, he felt ashamed of his teeth. Now think about that. How many of you really believe your worth and value to the creator of all things cares about your teeth to the extent that he's going to discard you? None of us do, right? Rick doesn't. But we have these things, these thoughts, and they, they get a hold of us. And all of a sudden, it can be, it can be your teeth. I mean, shoot, gee, I don't want to wear my glasses. They don't make me look good. I got news for me. Taking them off didn't help. <laughs> We let these things, they're there. we got to be aware of them all the time. But there are temptations out there that are almost pushing us towards putting that kind of mask on all the time. Who are you? I don't know. Let me check the mask in the mirror first. Oh, that's who I am today. I'm the happy-go-lucky pastor, and everything's good in my world. Whoops, wrong mask. I'm doing a funeral. I need to put on a sad, solemn face. Whatever your masks are, we put them on. We need to understand, first of all, that our emotions and our feelings are from God. We are created in the image of God, and God has all kinds of emotions. Look through the scriptures. I, just, I wrote down just a few, and you can make a lot longer list than this, I'm sure. Uh, let's see, where did I write it? Oh, God, he's delighted. He's grieved. He's filled with pain. He's jealous. He has fierce anger. He's love, compassion, sorrow, troubled, distressed, full of joy. Boy, about half of those, if we have them, we feel like we need to repent. No. We are created in the image of God. Our emo- you know God can speak to you through your emotions? Isn't that interesting? Maybe we should pay attention to our emotions. He might be speaking to us. But it's like testing the spirits. The enemy can speak to us through our emotions too. And certainly our flesh does. So we need to acknowledge them, know they're real, and then deal with them in a coherent, intelligent way. I hope I'm not just talking to myself, but that's okay if I am. How did Jesus deal with all of this outside pressure and disappointment? I mean, what would it be like for you or me? Our family thinks we're nuts. Our hometown wants to kill us. Our best friends abandon us. One of them betrays us. The religious people want nothing to do with us. Matter of fact, they plot to kill me. And the crowds start to abandon me. What would we do? Well, I tell you what, if you were me and struggling with rejection, I'd have had to figure out how to please everybody. Where do I start? What do I have to do? Come on, you guys, don't leave me. Please. I'm not nuts. What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to think? Tell me, that's what I'll do. I'll become compliant. Whatever it takes. What enabled Jesus to do it? There's a scripture in Matthew 3, verse 16 and 17. Jesus' ministry is about to begin. John the Baptist has been preaching repentance. He's been baptizing people. And one day he's in the, he's in the river and he's baptizing people. And here comes Jesus. Go into the water to be baptized. First John says, I'm not supposed to, I I should be baptized. No, you should be baptizing me. No, just do it. And then when he's coming out of the water, 
It says this, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Wow! Let me ask you this question. What in the world had Jesus done to deserve that? He hadn't done any miracles. He hadn't healed anybody. He hasn't raised anybody who was dead. He hasn't gave a tremendous teaching. He hasn't given a good sermon. He hasn't multiplied the bread. He hadn't done anything yet. And God is saying, this is my child. I love him. They bring me joy. I am pleased with him. I'm glad that he exists. I believe Jesus knew and was rock solid and lived in the love of God. And if we understood that, we don't have to do anything to earn his love. We can't. He loves us. He looks at you and he looks at me and he says, that's my beloved son, that's my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. You bring me joy. My father's heart bursts with joy for you. I get pleasure in you. Does he like our sin? No, not all the time. Really not ever. But it doesn't affect how much he loves you. And I believe when we get that, when we saturate in that kind of love, knowing, knowing how much he loves me, and then knowing that I can't earn it. I don't have to fake it. It won't do any good. And then on the flip side, knowing I can't screw up bad enough that I'll lose it. He loves me anyway. I believe when we get into that place where you will hear the Father saying, I love you, my son, my daughter. You bring me great joy. I get great pleasure in you. Deeply loved, treasured, but there's some temptations we face almost immediately. Things like, God's love isn't enough. I am not lovable and I'm not good enough. We listen to those lies and we start to put the mask right back on and we try to live some other way again, trying to earn love, earn of approval. These lies. And our culture, our culture is masterful at putting these lies out in front of us. But you know what? They aren't new lies. They're not new lies at all. They've been around a long time. Let's look at Jesus again. Remember when Jesus, after, right after, what happened right after he was baptized? He was taken out into the desert for 40 days, fasting. Probably a little hungry. Probably a little weak. Satan took him out there and Satan tempts him. When we look at these in Matthew 4, 3, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. I believe one of the first things we all face is, I am what I do. In our culture, who are you? I'm a policeman. No, I want to know who you are. I'm a housewife. Well, that's nice, but I want to know who you are. In our culture, performance. I am what I do. And if what I do is impressive in our particular culture, then I am Better than the rest of you. Performance. Again, the problem is there's already somebody that does something more important than you. Or better than you. Jesus hadn't accomplished anything. He didn't have to perform for the Father's love. We do not have to perform for the Father's love. 
this whole idea in our culture, what have you done lately? What is it you do? What have you accomplished? You know, somehow or other, success is supposed to make us worthwhile. Now, don't get me wrong. We want to do everything under the Lord as, as excellent as we can. But it doesn't determine who we are. True self is nowhere to be found in that mess. It's not what you do. Not what you do. Second one, I am what I have. In our culture, this whole idea of possessions. Wow, have you met so-and-so? You ought to see the car he's driving. I went and visited him at work. You ought to see his office. It's on the 18th floor overlooking the city. It's beautiful with the windows all the way around. Who have you seen that guy's girlfriend? Is she hot? Therefore, I must be something special. We, we struggle this, this, I am what I have. Determined by what we own. Big houses, big cars, fancy clothes, attractive bodies, young ladies. That has nothing to do with who you are. Our culture is lying to you. It's destroying our young ladies. That you've got to look a certain way, starve yourself, whatever it is. Not what I have. We talked about this a little bit in our group that I meet with on Fridays. And, you know, we came up with that line, you know, who, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? Troy reminded me, who he who dies with the most toys still dies. It's not about what we have. And the third one, I am what others think of me. Popularity. I'm going to back up quick. In Matthew 4.8, to give you the temptation that Jesus had, Satan had said to him, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, all the kingdoms of the world, and all of their glory, and said to him, all these things I'll give to you. I, Jesus, you want to be something, Jesus? I'll give it all to you. No, nah, Jesus said, I don't need that. I don't need that. And then the third one, I am what others think of me, the third trial that Jesus faced. The devil took him to the holy city and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. The holy city took him to Jerusalem, put him up on the temple. You know, just think of that. The big city, the temple where all the people go. And there you are, everybody's going to see you now, Jesus. You're going to have everybody's attention. Boy, are they going to be impressed with you. When you jump off the top of the temple and the angels come and catch you and gently glide you to the ground, are they going to be impressed with you? You are really going to be something. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to own anything or have anything. And it does not matter what other people think of you. It takes me a long time to get past those three. What do you think? You know, we might say, well, that's pretty cool, but that's Jesus. That isn't me. I'll give you another quick story and close with this story. It's one you're pretty familiar with in the Bible. Maybe you've not thought of it in quite this light. Everybody heard of David and Goliath? Yes? No? Maybe. Well, David and Goliath. The title of my new sermon could be, What if I'd have been David? Would have turned out different, I'm afraid. David was a young boy. We don't know exactly how old. Probably most people think he was somewhere between 15 and 18 years old. He was the baby in a family with eight boys. Can you imagine how he was picked on? He was a shepherd. Three of his older brothers were in the army of Saul. They were in God's army. And he was out there being a shepherd boy. 
And there's a battle taking place between the Philistines, the hated Philistines, and the army of God, Saul's army. And in those days, it was a little different than we might think of warfare, but if you can imagine a valley with a hill on each side, it's kind of like they're on the hillside and they stand and look at each other, and then they go down and fight. Only it wasn't happening quite that way. And it's so funny when you really read through the story. It says, David is finally sent there because the father wanted to get a report on his three oldest sons and take him some bread and cheese, why don't you, while you go. And David's thinking, all right, I can finally get away from the sheep for a day. See what's going on. Get out in the world. And David goes, and as he gets there, it describes the scene. It says, the, the army of God gets up in the morning and puts on their clothes and puts on their armor and gets all their weapons, and then they all get in battle lines and then do nothing. They've been doing this for 40 days. Because when they all get in their battle lines and the Philistines are getting in their battle lines, here comes Goliath, a warrior of the Philistines, and he comes walking down the hill and he gets down there and he looks up these, all these magnificently dressed soldiers of God, the army of God, and he says, who in the world are you guys? Come on down here, pick out your... Why are you dressed like that? We don't have to all fight. Just send down your best guy. He and I will go one-on-one. You know, it might help to know that Goliath is about nine and a half feet tall and weighs about a billion pounds. He's a big guy. And as soon as he goes down there, this army dressed in all their military equipment and their gear and their swords and their, their, all their stuff looking cool, turn and run and hide. And David's like... It says he comes and he leaves his package at the, the guy who collects all the packages before the battlefield. And he runs out to the battle lines to see what's going on because he wants to see his brothers. And he sees this happening and he's like, what in the world? We're taking this crap from this guy? And he says this and, and everybody looks around like, who's the young punk? His brother, it says his oldest brother's there and his older brother goes, shut up. Who do you think you are asking those questions? You're nothing but a troublemaker. You're here. You got tired of me. You're supposed to be home with the sheep. I mean, he insults him. He gets mad at him, calls him names. And David's like, just ask a question. And he goes and asks the next person, and, and they pretty much respond the same way. And David hears that if anybody, if anybody can go down and defeat him, the king will make you rich. Saul will make you rich. Now remember, the king, Saul, this beautiful, magnificent, tall Israeli king, valiant warrior, he's hiding in the tent. So they go tell him, hey, there's this young guy out here talking smart. And they told him, and it's interesting, David's response, they said, if you kill this guy, you're going to be made rich and you get to marry the king's daughter. And then David says, what? I read this different for so long. He says, What? Why? This is just an uncircumcised Philistine and he's, he's insulting the armies of God. You don't need to give anybody. Just, just go kill a guy and be done with it. Well, first his brother insults him, gets mad at him and angry, gets angry at him. Then he goes back to Saul and Saul looks at him. And, wow. I, you're just a young guy. I, what are you thinking? David... David knows who he is. David knows two things really well. He knows who his God is, and he knows who he is. And he said, this guy is insulting the God of Israel. 
this uncircumcised Philistine. I don't care. He didn't even see how big he is. All he knew is how big God is. His, this giant standing in front of him didn't intimidate him at all. And he knew what he could do. And yet Saul says, oh boy, well, okay. You know, and finally says that after David says, you know, when, I, when one of my lambs is taken by a bear or a lion, I go after that bear and I lion and, and I grab a hold of it and I kill it. And I take the lamb right out of its mouth. I'm sure you're like, yeah, right. This is no lion. This is no bear. And it's got a great big sword that most of us couldn't lift. Saul is like, really? And then finally says, okay. Now just think of this. The king, the king of Israel is putting everything in the hands of this young guy that they're all making fun of. And if you don't remember uh, Goliath's deal he was trying to cut with him, it was this. Just send down one guy. And if I kill him, you all become our servants. But if he kills me, we all become your servants. Saul is laying all of his people in the lap of this little David. Why would he do that? Because he's scared and doesn't know what else to do. So David stands there before Saul and says, Here, okay, put on my armor. And I picture when we put a football helmet on one of our little kids, you know, and you can just spin this thing because <laughs> their head's so small and the helmet's so big. That's kind of the picture we get here. You know, I get a picture of the shield being so big that you can't see David when he's behind it and the sword and it's clumsy and David puts it all on and, it, and it's like he says he tries to walk and he just turns around and says, this isn't going to work. What he's saying, this isn't me. This isn't who I am. This isn't my true self. I can't be what you want me to be. I can't be something else and defeat the giants in my life. I have to be who you created me to be, God. I have to use the gifts and the talents that you've given me, God. I've got to stick with my dreams, my vision, my passion, God, and I can overcome the giants in my life because you are a great big God and you created me for your glory. And David is standing there and he says, sorry, and he takes it all off and it says he goes and picks up a smooth stick and he takes his little sling and he goes down and he picks up five smooth stones and he goes down there and standing there and there's Goliath and Goliath has got to be laughing by now. His sword's bigger than David. And he says, These, now he, being ridiculed by your brothers was bad and now Saul's kind of, all right, whatever, little guy. And now the guy, Goliath, says, what is this? You're sending a child down here? A pretty boy down here? It says, he's handsome. What a pretty boy. You're gonna say, you know what? You're gonna, I'm going to feed you to the birds and the beasts of the land. I'm going to cut you up in pieces. Well, if you hadn't been intimidated yet, you might get intimidated by that. Nine foot, six inches tall. A spear that I probably couldn't lift. And he's going to feed me to the birds. David doesn't hear any of that. He doesn't see any of that. He just looks at him and says, who in the world do you think you are? This day, my God is going to deliver you into my hands. I am going to strike you down, and I'm going to cut off your head, and I'm going to feed not only you, but all your people to the birds and the animals. Using his gifts, his talent. And most all of us know the story. He took one stone with that sling, planted it deep in the guy's forehead. Goliath went down like a nine-foot-six ton of bricks. David didn't even have a sword of his own to follow through on cutting off his head, so he went over and took up Goliath's sword and cut off Goliath's head. 
And all the people fled. And the brave, mighty army of Israel then woke up and chased them and killed them, destroyed them. And then it says David marched around with Goliath's head and took it to Jerusalem. How cool is that? (laughs) I would love to march around with the giant's head that are in my life. I have overcome by Christ. The point of that story for me today is simply this. We have to know who we are and we have to know who God is so we can be our true self and not try to be somebody else. And it is a challenging thing. You know, as Bob mentioned last week in his sermon, so many people when we prayed for him last Saturday night came forward and and said, you know, I'm just spiritually stuck. It's like spiritually blocked. I believe one of those major issues, assuming we're doing, trying to do the right things, is we are not emotionally healthy to be spiritually healthy. I am messed up enough over here that it's still hindering my relationship with God. If I don't love me, I don't believe I can love God. And at the same time, if I don't love God, I don't know if I can ever love me. And the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. Boy, I'm afraid if I love most of my neighbors like I love me, we wouldn't get along that well. But by the grace of God, we can get to know ourselves so that we might know God. And that's what I hope happens in our lives as we begin to say, okay, God, I want to get rid of the masks. I want to throw them all away. I want to live in that true self that you created me to be. I'm not talking about some new age garbage. I'm not talking about any psycho babble stuff. I'm just saying I want to be who you created me to be. Show me. Reveal those things in me. Destroy those things in me. Bring them to the light. Bring them to the surface. He'll give you the grace to cope with them. He loves us. He loves us. You know, it's hard to imagine the God of the universe looking down at me and saying, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I love being around you. I love it when you talk to me. You bring me such joy, such pleasure. And the reality is that's how he thinks. That's how he thinks. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card with sin. We need to deal with our sin. But that's how much he loves us. And I believe as I, as I personally in my own life begin to understand more and more who I am, I am a child of God created in his image. Nothing in my life is an accident. He wants to use all of it. And I said, okay, go ahead. Now, does that mean I enjoy every layer as it gets peeled back? Uh-uh, I don't. And sometimes I don't even let him peel it back. But he, he's persistent and patient. I want to encourage you, if that sounds like you, man, just go before the Lord and say, you know, God, I want to, I'm through with this. This false image stuff, believing these lies that somehow I'm not good enough, I'm worthless, I've had it with that. I am going to become, by the grace of God, who you created me to be. And when we get to that place, it is such a freeing moment. When I don't have to live my life to please or impress anybody so that I have a good identity. That doesn't mean I don't want to please people. It doesn't mean I don't want to do my best. But if I don't, it doesn't change who I am. I'm still a child of God. Created in his image. Let's pray.
<clears throat> Lord, I, I, just, I just pray some of the words that we sang in those songs about being dry bones or being distant from you or having, having lost touch with you or with who we are. God, I thank you that we can turn and come running back to you. I thank you, Lord, that you have a plan for every life here. You have a destiny for each one. God, there is that real, true self that you created us to be with gifts, talents, dreams, visions, all of those things. Lord, I pray that you would break through to each one of us, that the enemy could no longer keep us ensnared in some of those subtle traps of his by believing lies that are contrary to what your word says about who we are in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would become a people free, understanding the depth, the the length, the breadth, the height of your love. God, that it would be contagious in this place, in our lives, in our families, in our community, that it would permeate everything we do. Lord, we ask all these things that you'd receive all the glory that you created us for. Father, help us in our weakness. Extend your grace towards us that we may truly bring glory to you. Lord, I also pray now for safe travel for those that are going to be on the road. And I pray blessing upon the food that we're about to eat together. Bless our time of fellowship. Bless our rehearsal time and the musical as we continue to prepare. God, we ask all these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.